Today on Truth in Politics and Culture, the Supreme Court hears arguments concerning what restrictions states can put on social media platforms. The media reacts to the death of a Georgia nursing student who allegedly died at the hands of an illegal immigrant. Why are red states staying red even though the blue state residents are relocating there? And a new bipartisan House bill seeks to rescue aid to Ukraine. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. Welcome in to a Tuesday edition of uh, Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. I'm glad you decided to join us this morning. We've got plenty of things to talk about, a lot of stuff in the news, which is kind of what we do around here every morning, 7.30 to 8.30 on YouTube and Facebook, and then again on the podcast later on in the day. So we give you a lot of different ways to uh, crank it up to be able to get your news. Yesterday, I want to give a big shout-out, big thanks to Upstate Homeschool Co-op that uh, allowed me to be there yesterday for four classes. I taught four times yesterday on uh, the basic elements of a biblical worldview, and I had the honor of doing that along with Austin Donahue from World Relief here in the Upstate, and uh, of course, he's now an advocate for world relief uh, legislatively and um, is really all over the place. When I say here in the upstate, he operates all over the state of South Carolina. And uh, Felicity Rupp, who is an, a policy analyst for Palmetto Promise, and she did a great job yesterday as well. Also, Dr. Hunter Baker, our new provost at North Greenville University, was present yesterday to speak. We, uh, we provided Chick-fil-A sandwiches for the high school students yesterday, and uh, Dr. Baker talked to them about sort of an overarching political philosophy without even talking about political candidates. I mean, he just talked about where we get some of the philosophical ideas that we hold and how we apply those in the public arena. So it was a great day. I enjoyed the teaching, enjoyed uh, all meeting uh, some of the teachers that I hadn't met before. I'm going to be teaching an extension class, or uh, not an extension class, it's a dual enrollment class for North Greenville University in the fall, it's going to be a class on leadership. So students will be able to get college credit as well as getting high school credit by taking the class. And then, of course, uh, it, they'll get that college credit if they come and bring those college credits to North Greenville University. You've heard me talk about North Greenville a lot already this morning. And, of course, those of you who followed the radio program for 22 years and those who continue to follow this program on Facebook and YouTube and later as a podcast, know that that's where I work, North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and society. I've been there almost 20 years, and um, I'm all, I also serve as the policy consultant for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. Coming up this week, Thursday, in Columbia, the Medical Affairs Full Committee is going to be debating uh, 4624, which is the House bill that would ban transgender surgery for minors and would, would also uh, prevent puberty blockers and cross-hormone treatments for minors as well. 
I, I really can't imagine why anybody would oppose that, but uh, it'll be a, a fairly robust debate, I'm sure. I'm confident the votes will be there once the debate is over and the discussion about amendments wraps up, that the votes will be there to push that bill to the Senate floor, and hopefully we'll get it passed um, this this session. That would be nice. So that's happening on Thursday down in Columbia. Just a couple of programming notes. Um, it's it's a hectic week for me this week, and it really it bugs me when I have to um, not do the show because my schedule just won't allow it. Uh, but tomorrow morning is the governor's prayer breakfast in Columbia, so I'm going down to Columbia, staying there tonight, so that I can be there for the governor's breakfast in the morning. Starts at 7:30, um, and then I've got to get back to um, North Greenville to speak as part of a panel discussion tomorrow on the campus. And then Thursday morning, uh, I also am not going to be able to do the show Thursday morning simply because I will be in at uh, in Casey at, uh, I think it, uh, I can't remember the name of the church. I better not throw it out there. But uh, anyway, I'll be doing a, a pastor's breakfast, speaking there along with Chad Connolly and Representative John McCravey, I think is going to join us for that. And uh, so looking forward to being part of that. But that's going to be at 8.30 in Casey, so I'll have to leave here uh, uber early on Thursday to get down there in time. And um, uh, then just it, it's just been a – it's just going to be a really – it's a really busy week this week. So Friday, um, after today, I'll be back on Friday morning with the program. And then next week, I'll only do the show on Friday. And here's the reason. And it's just – it's unfortunate the schedule's worked out to this uh, this way so that these these things are back to back. But uh, on Monday I had to Dallas to be part of a SACS committee that's looking at a university out there uh, for accreditation, and that's part of what I do and my role at North Greenville University. I mean, I I, I try to when uh, our accrediting agency calls on people uh, to come and be part of that process. Um, I try to respond and to help with that, so I'll be heading out early Monday morning to Dallas, and of course, as the time difference makes it impossible for me to do the show live, and uh, I just won't have the time because of the crunch schedule to do anything about the podcast while I'm out there. So today's show and Friday's show uh, will be this week, and then next week um, I'll be back on Friday morning, but be out the rest of the week. All right, um, let's jump into the news today because there's plenty of things to talk about. Um, you know, this this whole business of the Supreme Court yesterday, hearing the cases as it relates to um, the social media companies and what they can and can't do, I really find that fascinating because I think that social media companies represent more than just private companies that happen to be... Uh, putting out information for us. I mean, it, it, there there was a time when that was the case. Um, you know, social media really started with if you if you remember, um, well, back when Facebook started. I mean, they really didn't have much news. It was um, it was just people's opinions, people connecting, people talking, and now that's expanded into a lot of people getting their news from Facebook, and of course, people get their news from TikTok. They get their news from X. They get their news from Instagram. Um, they get information. They meet people. They hear opinions. And the question is, can these social media platforms decide 
who can be on the platform and who cannot be on the platform or because they're private companies or have has this industry the idea of a social media platform become part of the general conversation uh, where you know it's it's more like a public utility kind of like a phone company or the electric company and you can't deny people service to those um, or the access to those services and so the debate is kind of roiling around that so the question, do Texas and Florida have the right to ban or censor political candidates or to hide posts about candidates? Uh, the, the law that Florida, well, particularly Florida passed, also prevents the platforms from taking any action to censure, deplatform, or shadow ban a journalistic enterprise based on the content of its publication or broadcast. Uh, you might remember how the New York Post accurate story on Hunter Biden's laptop just disappeared in October of 2020, right before the presidential election. And of course, a lot was said about that. You had all these people from the deep state, the intelligence community coming out, um, 50 or 100, I think, uh, intelligence officials, former intelligence officials, saying that this looked like Russian collusion, some kind of Russian plot. Well, we now know that the laptop was not a Russian plot. It was Hunter's laptop. And the information on there has turned out to be embarrassing for Hunter Biden and President Biden and possibly uh, information that's revealed sort of a lifetime of corruption and cash carrying from all over the world to the Biden family pocketbook. So um, this is when that story got dumped or got pretty much shoved to the margins uh, right before the election, that was interfering or many people said it was an example of interfering in the 2020 Election. The law also requires all, con all content moderation standards to be applied in a consistent manner. In other words, you can't do something to conservatives that you're not doing to progressives. If, if there's a progressive voice that appears to be promoting violent behavior, then that progressive voice has to be censured if you're going to censure a conservative voice for doing the same, same thing. Now, this is all in the Florida law. The Texas law is a little bit more broad in preventing the platforms from censuring that affects political viewpoints. Uh, but it's the, the laws are very similar, similar enough that these cases are being heard together. Net Choice is the trade group that represents big tech. They're suing Texas and Florida, and they're claiming they're violating the free speech rights of the company. Uh, they are, they're arguing the platforms have the right to censure speech that they find offensive, including hate speech. Now, it's interesting that they're talking about free speech rights when the the issue here is whether or not speech can be censured or not. I mean, even offensive speech under the United States Constitution is supposed to be allowed because we're supposed to be the ones that make the decision about what we listen to, what we don't listen to. It's not the government's role to do that. Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody told Morning Wire that Florida's law, and of course she's going to be defending Florida's law because um, that passed, and that she would be the one as the attorney general to stand up and say that this law is valid. She says that the law makes it clear that it, that it doesn't protect, um, it's not protecting any particular kind of speech. Here's what she told Morning Wire about the law. It really is a battle of the companies that argue they have the free speech right to censor, deplatform, shadow ban, 
and Florida, who says we have the right to pass legislation that protects those that are going onto these platforms. You have to apply these things in a fair and consistent way. She's arguing that the platforms, even if you argue that shadow banning and these other things that we know are happening on the platforms are need to be curtailed, um, or, uh, that they need to be curtailed, and that any kind of restrictions on speech, need we need to make sure that the restrictions are consistent in the way that they're applied. Uh, question boils down to whether tech companies and their social media platforms like I said earlier, or like the phone company or any other public utility who has to accommodate everyone, or are they more like newspapers and magazines who have the right to edit as they see fit the content that goes on their platforms? So if you listen to the cu- the questions yesterday from the justices and some of the comments they made, uh, you would you would have to say, I think, that they tend to be more sympathetic toward the platforms than toward the states that are trying to regulate them. Justice Kavanaugh, for instance, said, quote, when he thinks of Orwellian, he thinks of the state, not the private sector. So that would indicate that he's not as concerned about the way the the private sector or these social media companies and platforms are monitoring their own activities as they would be if the state stepped in and made laws that would uh, tell them how the monitoring had to take place. Justice Sotomayor said, quote, under these laws, Etsy might not be able to decide which items could be sold on its platform. And then you had Judge Alito asking if under the reasoning of the platforms, Google might be able to cut off the email accounts of Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson. So that's coming back the other way. Alito seemed to be more sympathetic to the state's ability to regulate social media companies because they haven't demonstrated they've been particularly responsible with the decisions that they're making. Um, So Justice Thomas also seemed to lean more toward treating the the platforms like utilities. Uh, That's why uh, Section 230, he said, protections are there that keep um, these companies from being liable from any kind of speech that they host. And so if, if, they're, if they're kept from being liable, then by, by really, then the, um, the states should be able to have an opportunity to weigh into in, in, with these companies to make sure that the speech that they're allowing is consistent on both sides, that progressives and conservatives are being treated in the same manner. Justice Barrett acknowledged any ruling would create landmines for Section 230. Um, and whether that would be true or not, I mean, I, I suppose it would, um, because if the justices rule in favor of the companies, then what what are you going to say about 230? If they can't held be they can't be held liable uh, because and yet they're censoring their own speech. So if they can't be held liable for what's going on there, why not allow the speech to be posted and let the people make the decision about whether or not. It's something that they want to participate in or listen to or read. Um, and, and here's the other thing that kind of muddies up the water. We know that the federal government's been involved in flagging content. It doesn't like getting the platforms to remove that content. And in my mind, that makes them an arm of the government, not just private companies working in the area of public opinion. So how do you take that into consideration as the judges consider this case? No way to know which way it's going to go. If I had to handicap it, 
I would say reading comments from these justices, I would say it's going to be a close decision, but it likely could be 5-4 um, in the direction of uh, ruling against the states and allowing the social media companies to continue to be the police of their own content without the state getting involved. All right, I want to talk about the murder of uh, Lake and Riley. Uh, this has really gotten a lot of people upset and rightly so, because we now know that Lake and Riley, who did nothing more than go for a run on the University of Georgia campus, was murdered by an illegal, an illegal immigrant from Venezuela who was in the country despite an, a fairly extensive criminal record and a warrant that had been posted for his arrest. Uh, Fox News had previously reported that 26-year-old Jose Antonio Ibera charged with the murder of Riley on the University of Georgia campus, had crossed into the U.S. illegally near El Paso in September of 2022 and was paroled into the United States. So he was detained. He, the, his case was to be adjudicated, and wh whoever, the Border Patrol or whatever, uh, whoever made the decision, allowed him to go ahead and come into the United States to await the outcome of his case. In a statement to Fox News Di Digital, ICE confirmed that he had been encountered by Customs and Border Protection on September 8, 2022, after entering near El Paso and was paroled and released for further processing. ICE also confirmed that Ibera had been arrested by the New York uh, Police Department a year later, September 14, 2023, and he was charged with acting in a manner to injure a child less than 17, and a motor vehicle license violation. When ICE learns that what it believes to be a removable illegal immigrant has been arrested on criminal charges, the agency will normally lodge a detainer. That And a detainer would be a request asking law and lo, uh, local law enforcement to keep the suspect in custody until they can be transferred to ICE and put into deportation proceedings. So in a, in a rational world, in a world that makes sense, where the laws make sense and they're designed to protect the citizens, then you would have ICE call up the New York Police Department, and once uh, Ibera was arrested and charged with a crime, he would be detained by local law enforcement until ICE could get up there, pick him up, and then process him and send him back to Venezuela. But in this case, ICE's statement says Ibera was released before a detainer could be issued. Now, I'm shocked that that would happen in New York City, that a sanctuary city like New York that generally restricts law enforcement from complying with ICE detainers would actually just ignore ICE's request and let this guy out and put him back out on the street. And, of course, what he did is come to Georgia and allegedly murdered a student who was out for a jog. Riley, an Augusta University nursing student, was found dead Thursday after previously attending UGA before entering a nursing program at Augusta's Athens campus where she made the dean's list. Police have charged Ibera with malice murder, felony murder, aggravated battery, aggravated assault, false imprisonment, kidnapping, hindering a 911 call, and concealing the death of another. That's the charges that were announced on Friday. Ibera's brother, Diago, was charged Friday with possessing a fraudulent green card, and he's being held in state custody. The federal arrest affidavit for Diago Ibera says that in September 2023, 
athens clark County Police charged him with drunken driving and driving without a license. He was later arrested for shoplifting and later skipped court. Now, this is, this is becoming, as illegal immigration has soared under the Biden administration, this has become a more pressing problem. The crime rate, not just the fentanyl coming across the border that's risking American lives and causing uh, death because people are smoking pot laced with fentanyl, they're taking other drugs laced with fentanyl, and it's causing their death. So we have not only that, but we have illegal immigrants with criminal records who are being allowed to uh, be released by law enforcement because they consider themselves sanctuary cities, part of sanctuary cities, and they're committing crimes. Um, they've been a net, there have been network stories that mention Abera uh, was in the country illegally. In other words, CBS and, and NBC and some of the major networks have acknowledged Abera's illegal immigration status, but several outlets have downplayed the status. CNN didn't mention it until about 15 paragraphs into the story, and the Atlanta Constitution uh, Journal, uh, excuse me, Atlanta Journal Constitution referred to him as an Athens man, as in he's just a man who happened to be in Athens or lived in the Athens area. And of course, the Associated Press decided the best way to respond would be to run a story on the danger of women jogging alone. The AP, you know, to me, that would be like writing a story about the Titanic. And what you write about is the danger of icebergs in, in the North Atlantic. I mean, instead of talking about what happened with the Titanic. So the AP likened Riley's murder to another case. Riley's death has once again put the spotlight on the dangers of female that female runners face, according to the AP. Previously, the 2018 death of University of Iowa student Molly Tibbetts while out jogging prompted an outpouring from other women who shared their tales of being harassed and followed. Well, that's, and, and this is the AP, this is how they're writing about this story about Riley's murder. They went on to say crime statistics indicate these type of attack, attacks are rare, but they underscore the hypervigilance women must take when going out, even for a run on campus. Now, Tibbetts was murdered, the AP conveniently leaves out, by Christian Bahina Rivera, who was an illegal immigrant from Mexico. So you had essentially the same situation, and there was no linkage acknowledged by the Associated Press that they were talking about two women who were jogging, the emphasis was on the danger of jogging, not on, not on the fact that allegedly, or we, well, we know in the, uh, in the case that, was, that we, we just mentioned here um, from, from the University of Iowa, we know that, that, that Molly Tibbetts was murdered by an illegal, but, and now there's this alleged murder of, another, of a student here in Georgia, or down in Georgia, that um, is, is very similar, and yet the thing that makes them similar is something that the AP left out. Tibbetts was murdered, the AP left out by, as we said, by an illegal, illegal immigrant from Mexico. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds at the time lamented the policies that, quote, allowed a predator like this to leave in, live in our community. Well, if you have prosecutors... Or if I mean, if you have police and prosecutors who 
allow people to these people to make bail, the people who are here illegally um, that are charged with a crime, or in, I mean, if they're released, the likelihood is that they're going to disappear, and then you open up the possibility of further criminal activity. The Heritage Foundation did went back and kind of looked at, did a study on the amount of violence that's being committed by illegal immigrants. And, and I should say, you know, here that this doesn't mean that everybody that comes across the border is going to commit a crime. But the more people you let across the border illegally, the more opportunity there's going to be for criminal activity, especially when they're when you've got a catch and release program that paroles them into the interior of the of the country without an extensive background check. In 2023 alone, Border Patrol agents, according to the Heritage Foundation, have encountered thousands of illegal aliens with prior criminal convictions, including assault, rape, and murder. The true extent of the crimes committed by illegal aliens remains unknown because there are over 1.5 million unaccounted for gotaways since President Biden's term began. A 2021 Department of Justice report revealed that 64% of federal arrests in 2018 involved non-citizens, despite them comprising only 7% of the population at that time. And that's back in 2018. That's before we had this, we've had this incredible surge under the Biden administration. Several chilling examples underscore the urgency of the situation. Alexis Sorbrit, an illegal alien from Cuba with a history of violence, beheaded his girlfriend with a machete in July of 2021. In April of uh, 2023, uh, Francisco Oropesa, who was deported four times in the last 14 years, was accused of gunning down five Honduran immigrants in Cleveland, Texas, including an eight-year-old um, that was just happened to be. This was kind of a. Uh, I mean, it was a what not necessarily gang related, but the eight-year-old was just a bystander. Where when this these when this murder took place. In February, Brian Marquis, who had been who had deportation orders issued but was still in the United States, brutally murdered his roommate by beating him. He was charged with first-degree murder. And in January, Jose Hernandez faced five counts of indecency with a minor after allegedly sexually assaulting a young child multiple times. Now these took place, all of this took place between 2021 and 2023. But according to the Federation of American Immigration Reform, so far in 2024, on January 9th, ICE arrested Haitian national Pierre Lucard Emile for allegedly raping a developmentally disabled person in Boston, Massachusetts. They originally, this person that uh, has been charged with this crime, originally entered the U.S. in Brownsville, Texas in December of 2022 and was simply released into the country with a notice to appear. January 27th, you had a large group of illegal aliens viciously attacked and beat NYPD officers in the area of Times Square, New York, near many of the hotels converted by Mayor Eric Adams into taxpayer-funded migrant shelters. The group of asylum seekers was congregating in the area in search of opportunities to commit crimes and being disorderly when told by the police officers to disperse the migrants began kicking and punching them, sending them to the ground and injuring them, and even stealing one officer's phone. 
The illegal, the illegal aliens then fled the scene. After a manhunt, six were arrested as the NYPD searched for eight more suspects. So then you fast forward to January 30th of this year. You, you have Alonzo Pierre Mingo, who impersonated a package delivery man to trick his way into a home in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He demanded money and then shot three people in the head. Shannon Patricia Jungworth, Mario Alberto Treja Estrada, and Jorge Alexander Rejus uh, Jungworth uh, were shot in front of two children uh, in front of two children under five that were present in the house. Police believe that drug trafficking played an important role in the case, although its exact immigration status at the time of the crime has not been published. Court, court records show that back in March, Mingo had been in ICE custody. He was charged with firearms, ammo possession, which illegal um, aliens cannot possess, and was sentenced to a 57-month prison term in November, then let out on superver- uh, supervised release. That was November of 2020, in February of 2023. So these are, these are all cases and histories going back from 2018 up through 2024 of the violence that's being brought to our country because we've got a catch and release program. Because And, and this has got to be fixed. I mean, there are a lot of reasons that the illegal immigration system right now in our country is has we we've got to get a handle on it. Uh, but one of the main reasons is that it's causing real danger to the life of our citizens. Again, through fentanyl, drugs that are pouring into the country, but also through violent criminal behavior by by people who are just allowed to come into the country, be released into the population. Sometimes they're picked up, sometimes they're charged with a crime, released, and then they go out and reoffend without being deported. I mean, this makes absolutely no sense. We need a sane immigration program, something that, and, and really, we could just enforce the laws that are on the books. If President Biden, I mean, he has the power to end this by issuing executive orders that would shut down the border. I mean, if this is not a crisis, if it's not an emergency, I don't know what has to happen in order for an emergency to be declared when you have this level of violence allegedly being perpetrated against American citizens. All right, I've got another story here I wanted to jump to today because I found it fascinating that essentially blue state residents are moving into red states and yet the red states are staying red um, because a lot of the people that are fleeing blue states, you know, I've been concerned about that. Let me, let, me, let me just say this has been something that has bothered me for a long time. I mean, you read about people moving from New York. They're moving from California. They're moving from Illinois. They're coming from uh, red states where taxes are high, uh, where criminals are let out of jail, where shoplifting and other crimes go unpunished. Uh, where you have a homeless uh, problem because the homeless are allowed pretty much to take over the streets. I mean, there, there are so many problems in these red states, and people are leaving, and, and oh, excuse me, blue states, and people are leaving and coming to red states, and the concern is that they bring their blue politics with them and they transform the red states. But the truth is the Wall Street Journal 
has analyzed census data and found that a third of the state's new residents, now that we're talking specifically now about South Carolina, a third of the state's new residents between 2017 and 2021 came from blue states, a quarter from red states, and the remainder came from closely divided states, including Georgia and North Carolina. So the new arrivals are disproportionately Republican. So the people that are fleeing, I mean, you can, you can look at it one way and you can say, well, these people that are coming from blue states are coming here because they're, they've been made blue by the policies of those states and they're looking for something better. They want a better life, so they come to a red state, but they're still going to be liberal. They're still going to be progressive. They just want to take advantage of the cost of living and the, the fact that criminals are actually being punished in red states. But... Estimates from the nonpartisan voter file vendor suggest 57% of voters who moved to South Carolina during that time are Republicans. In other words, and only 36% are Democrats, 7% are independents. So that places them roughly in line with recent statewide votes in South Carolina. Current Republican Governor Henry McMaster took 58% of the vote in 2022, and Trump had a 12-point margin over Biden in 2020. And, of course, we know Trump beat Nikki Haley by 20 points on this past Saturday. So according to the Wall Street Journal, the Palmetto State is a prime example of why a years-long wave of migration to the South has largely failed to change its partisan tent. Many people who, live, who leave blue states are Republicans gravitating toward a more politically favorably, uh, excuse me, favorable new home. In Florida, 48% of people who moved there between 2017 and 2021 came from blue states. 29% uh, came from red states according to the census data. Among those who registered to vote, 44% are Republicans, 25% are Democrats, and 28% are nonpartisan. Texas also has a heavier flow of newcomers from blue states, but a greater share who estimate are Republican. So according to Paul Westcott, people do look for their own cohorts. He said, in, 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 particularly in South Carolina, people see a lower cost of living, lower taxes. They're looking for that cohort that matches their own. Maybe they're not thinking about it consciously, but they're finding themselves among other conservatives when they move into red states. Well, of course, that makes sense. Listen to this quote. I like Terry Lush, who previously worked for a major bank as a longtime Republican who will enthusiastically vote for Trump. In Saturday's primary, he's here in South Carolina, John Lush, retire, a retired carpenter, was a Democrat in New York but felt that the state's Democratic leadership was getting too aggressive. He cited environmental restrictions, including a gas stove ban and higher taxes, and he recently registered as a Republican. I love this quote. He says, when you're younger, you can afford to be a liberal. Now you can't. John Lush, who is no fan of Trump and will vote for Haley on Saturday, has enjoyed living under South Carolina's conservative government. The state politics are very nice. It's agreeable, that he said. So that's, I, I, I mean, that's interesting um, to me. They come here. They like what they see. Some of them, some of the people that come from blue states, um, end up being continuing to be Democrat, continuing to continue to be progressive, but the vast majority 
are Republicans to begin with, and then a portion of the Democrats that move here decide that they like the direction of the state, and they begin to vote more Republican. The four-county Greenville metro area where Greer is located grew 4.2% between 2019 and 2021, faster than South Carolina as a whole, which grew at 2.6% during the same time. It's almost to the point now where we can't turn the spigot off, said Carlos Phillips, CEO of the Greenville Chamber of Commerce. Phillips said the combination of major corporations such as BMW and Michelin offering jobs in a livable city have helped the area boom. The chamber expects the county's more than half a million people to increase by at least 40% by 2040. So people want to come to South Carolina. They want to, they want to go to Florida. They want to move to states where the government seems to have a clue about a quality of life and create an environment where people want to be to raise a family or to retire. And instead of affecting the state and turning it blue, they're keeping it red. And that's good news. Uh, because like, and, and like I say, that's, that's a trend not only for South Carolina, but it's happening in other red states as well. And I really thought it was going to be the opposite. I was very concerned that we were just going to, we were going to end up with people coming to South Carolina to make it blue if they're coming from a blue state. All right. One more story. We've got uh, some house uh, bipartisan uh, house members that are getting together and they're going to try to resurrect some type of bill to give aid to Ukraine. This is according to the wall street journal today. The war in Ukraine has entered its third year. The most crucial uh, front for Kiev may be in the U.S. House of Representatives. A bipartisan group of lawmakers has rolled out a fresh attempt to, to, at a compromise bill to send military aid to Ukraine, and Speaker Mike Johnson can't duck this test of his leadership and benefits. Now, that's, uh, this is an opinion piece, obviously. So they're going after Mike, Mike Johnson because he's been unwilling uh, to put to bring this Ukraine aid bill that came from the Senate to bring it out for a vote. So Representative Brian Fitzpatrick, Republican from Pennsylvania, and Jared Golden, a Democrat from Maine, Don Bacon, a Republican from, from Nebraska, and others have introduced the Defending Borders, Defending Democracies Act that combines border security with weapons to allies. Among other border control measures, the bill stipulates that migrants coming over from the southern border must stay in Mexico while their asylum claims are assessed. Now, that's a version of Donald Trump's Remain in Mexico policy, which, by the way, worked. I mean, it, it, it really did keep down the number of illegal immigrants coming in and being released into the country. So those provisions, of course, are going are to have Democrats running from the bill. So there, it's going to take a lot of, of uh, GOP support for the provisions providing military aid for Ukraine for this thing to pass. And, of course, talking about it, the, the bill does provide uh, weapons and ammo to Ukraine, Israel, and to the Pacific, which would be Taiwan. The bill includes roughly $47 billion for Ukraine priorities. That's down from about $60 billion in the bill that passed the Senate earlier this month. The House lawmakers excluded the Senate's $7.8 billion in government budget aid to Kiev, which Ukraine's critics portray as paying salaries for bureaucrats. 
And Europe's been picking up that money anyway. So cutting that money out is, is a good thing. The bill also expands U.S. arsenals and munitions, funding U.S. military operations in the Red Sea, and spending $3 billion to help America build more submarines. The measure would spend $4 billion refilling uh, Israel's stocks of air defense interceptors, a critical need if Iran orders Hezbollah in Lebanon to launch its missiles. So does this bill have a chance? It depends. Um, and it's going to depend because of the border restrictions. There, you're not going to find many Democrats in the House that are going to embrace in any way any form of a Remain in Mexico policy. So likely what you're going to have um, is you, you're going you're to have to get all the Republicans behind it. And I don't know if even though the amount of aid to Ukraine has been reduced, I don't know if there's enough Republicans that are going to get behind the bill. Um, that's just going to have to – we'll have to wait and see how this goes through the House and whether or not Speaker Johnson allows this bill to get to the floor for a vote. They're, they say they've got some kind of procedure – that they can work around so that the bill has to come up for a vote. Um, but that remains to be seen, whether they can do that or not. All right, that's all the time that we're going to have for today. I appreciate you listening to the program. I hope you've enjoyed it. As I said, uh, we won't be here tomorrow or Thursday, but we'll be back on Friday before having to take the next week off because I'll be in Dallas. But I appreciate you listening today. If uh, you like the show, please like us and share us on Facebook. And if you download the podcast, which will be available probably in an hour or so, then please leave me a good review and tell others so that they can download the podcast and enjoy it as well. God bless you. Have a good day. I'll see you on Friday morning at 730.